Welcome to The Wealth Standard Radio, your gold standard in everything financial. Welcome to The Wealth Standard Radio. This is Sean Fleming uh, coming to you from our uh, magic studio here along the Wasatch Front where we talk about uh, finance and everything certain. Um, I've got a special guest with us today. You, you might have all uh, listened to Mr. Nate Butler before. Nate's an exciting guy. He's, uh, he's a lot of fun to be around. And sometimes when we get talking, the conversation, you know, it goes to play more than it really goes to uh, work. But uh, Nate, it's good to have you here. Thanks. I, I appreciate being here. And, I, and I'm excited to be here. I think I'm more nervous than anything, though. Good. My hands are sweating. Good. <laughs> well, by the time we're done, we're going to have some, we're going to have a lot of fun and all that sweat will be gone and sweet. We'll have a whole lot of energy. So, you know, the first thing that popped into my mind was uh, maybe starting this out with a little bit of controversy. What do you think about that? Let's do it. So investors are dopes. What do you think about that comment? Investors are dopes. From a traditional standpoint, absolutely. Okay. Why would you say that though? Because <laughs> well, I know that's catching you a little off guard and nothing we're talking about today was really planned. This is completely impromptu. If I think about when you say investor, I don't know, I guess maybe I need a definition of, of what you're talking about there. But I, I mean, I would think the typical person thinks they're an investor by throwing their money in their 401k and they're thinking, I'm an investor, I'm investing. And how has that worked out? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to include myself in that, that okay. investors are dopes, but we're going to set that aside for a minute. And let's talk about, I want to talk about risk. Um, two weeks ago, Brad and Ryan had a great um, radio podcast where they talked about risk. And I think there's so much more that we can talk about. Yeah. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about that, but more the psychology of risk. Why, why do we take risk? What is it about that that keeps us coming back? And how can we mitigate that? If, if we have that in us where we're prone to take risk, which is, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the why there, what can we do to uh, create a system to where we don't do that? We kind of put a lock on, on the cabinet and we can't get into whatever it is that <laughs> we shouldn't be getting to. Um, so there was a, uh, a movie that we watched a while back in one of uh, um, the things that you and I were at together. Yeah called uh, Mind Over Money. It was a production that was put together by Nova. It's on PBS. Uh, all of our listeners can Google that if they want to, but it's a fascinating um, movie about risk and more specifically why we take the risk that we take. And one of the things that was on there was this auction. One of the universities did an auction of a $20 bill, and they had a whole bunch of students, and they auctioned off this $20 bill, and the $20 bill sold for $28. Do you remember that? Yeah, the, the point is it sold for more. <laughs> it sold for more than what it was worth. Yeah. And it was about the irrationalness of that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? It, it, Why would that happen? Well, to me, it comes back to you know scarcity and somebody thinking, I've got to have that because if I don't get it, somebody else will, and then I won't have a chance to have it. So I'm willing to pay more for something that maybe isn't really valued at what I'm going to pay for it. So I think it probably comes back to some something of scarcity. Yeah, and they showed how as that moved on and the price got higher and higher, pretty soon it got to the point where everybody knew there really was no more value. But in this particular case, there was a requirement that whoever lost the bid, whoever came in second actually had to pay you know, that amount of money. And so then there became this, this competition. Yeah. to who could be higher, mm. and pretty soon there had to be somebody that said, okay, I'm done, yeah. I'm out, and they had to cut their losses. Yeah. $28 for a $20 bill, and it's just a small example, but does that happen in the market? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and so when I say investors are dopes, it's not, I don't mean that as a critical comment. I think we're all, uh, we're all human, and we all are driven by emotion. And there's this, this theory out there that the market is rational. And there's probably a lot of good um, data points on that. But then we're human. And there's got to be some give and take. There's got to be a little bit of, of both. And Adam Smith, you know, he absolutely believed in, you know, this uh, invisible hand. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of that, which, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely all for a free market. Right. I believe it needs to be a free market, but I also believe that there's times where we are not going to be rational, right. especially when the going gets tough, 
when the going gets tough and we've got to make really difficult decisions, did we put all of the key markers in place to make sure that we made this, the right decision, that we weren't going to fall back into old traditions or old dogmas or old triggers that maybe we're acting like a little child when we should be acting like an adult with our investing? Well, here, here's a thought on that, actually. So when we're young, we're... When whether we're young or whether we're old, we have hum, human nature tells us we should swing for the fences. When we're young, we're swinging. Maybe we're swinging for the fences because we want to impress people. We want to, you know, hit it big just just because. When we get old, maybe we didn't have. Maybe we swung for the fences and we struck out too many times, and we didn't build the foundation and that asset pool that we needed to, to be able to not have to swing for the fences when we're older. So now it's more of a, a desperation. We're swinging for the fences because we feel like we have to. Yeah. Ultimately, we're still swinging for the fences, and we're going to strike out at some point. That's... And what a dangerous game. Right. And in that, I really enjoyed how they talked about the reason why. And it's science. I mean, there's a chemical and that is in our bodies <clears throat> that's produced as a result of experiences that we have. Mm. And when we have certain experiences, we continue to build that chemical that's in our body. And some of us are more susceptible to that than others. And we just need to be honest about it. We need to be vulnerable about it. And if I know that when the going gets tough, I start rubbing my hands together and, and I need to have, you know, a little more excitement in yep. my life, somebody better, you know, real quick, <laughs> build the moat around the castle if I have them. Because sometimes that moat around the castle isn't just to keep, you know, the bad stuff out. It's maybe <laughs> to, to keep, keep me <laughs> from... From getting out and sure. doing things that I shouldn't do. Yep. And I'm using myself as an example because I'm, I'm a pro here. <laughs> <laughs> and I've made a tremendous amount of money. But at the same time, when it came to my own finances, I made some decisions in 2007 and 2008. Actually, it was just prior to that, that I couldn't unwind when the time got tough. Mm. And so when that moment appeared, I really didn't have the choices that I needed to have. I've learned so much from that experience. And education is probably one of the best things that we can invest in for ourselves. Benjamin Franklin said, use the coins in your purse to fill your mind and your mind will fill your purse. Mm. But sometimes like education, that. sometimes we get it when we didn't expect it. Yeah. Right? So let's spend a little bit of time talking about that. Okay. But let me, cl let me close the door on investors or dopes a little bit. Okay. It's that dopamine that you know, comes into our system as a result of experiences. And that happens with eating. It happens with um, addictions, um, all of those things. And we don't need to get into detail on that, but it's very real. And we need to be honest about it. And not everybody has that. I mean, you and I know people that just do not have the need for that risk. Right. Now, I know you have a little bit of a need for that risk. I've seen you, or I've heard about, I've seen a video of you on your motorcycle. Now maybe, I, now maybe, maybe I shouldn't have sent you that video. <laughs> so, that video brought a huge smile to my face. And you sent it to me when we were in an event. And if I remember right, I'm watching that video. And uh, at a certain point in that video, you biff it. Yep. You, you wipe out. And it. It comes completely unexpected, but you were on this trail. It was a single track trail. You're on your motorcycle um, in the mountains. It's a narrow trail, and you've got a steep drop off to the right, and you've got a whole bunch of rocks on your left. And if I thought back about that, I could have predicted that something bad was going to happen because it seemed like you were looking at the scenery. You yes, were enjoying yourself. Absolutely. Talk to me about that. Okay, so I've been, and we're talking about dirt bikes. I'm up in the mountains in Utah. It's it's steep. It's rocky, and all those things. And I'm on a a uh, two, three foot trail. Okay. So I've been riding dirt bikes, uh, for 20 plus years. So I'm, I'm an experienced rider. I know, I know what I'm doing. So as a result, you know, I, maybe things come more natural now or, you know, staying in control of the bike, it's more of a natural thing. And so I wasn't focused, like you said, you know, I wasn't focused on the things I really should have been focusing on as I came to this certain section of the trail and <laughs> within an instant, I mean, it was so fast. My my front tire washed out. It's kind of like if you're riding a bike and and you hit some gravel and the and the tire just gets loose and it it flies. That's what happened to me. And I was on a dirt bike up in the mountains and uh, gravity took its course and that knocked me out. There wasn't much you could do. No, I mean it was over at that point. If you went to the right, oh boy, you'd, <laughs> you'd have gone downhill. 
And fortunately, you went to the left, but it was all rocks. Right. And that had to have hurt. Yep. But uh, I heard another story about you. <laughs> and I hate to do this, but uh, you used to do some jumping. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how far you want to go with this story, but I think you know what I'm getting <laughs> to. Talk to me about that experience of you jumping, why you don't jump as much now, and what it was that caused you to want to keep jumping. Yeah. So um, now I'm married. I have kids and everything, and, and so I don't ride like I good. used to ride. So that's all good. <laughs> but more the reason why I don't do this is because of this this one experience that I had back prior to being married and all that. And, and you know, again, swinging for the fences and, and, and uh, getting that uh, that rush, you know. So, you know, me and my brothers, we'd, we'd go out almost every weekend. We'd ride and have fun. And, and uh, you know, one thing led to another. We're, we're trying to out, outdo each other. Oh, boy. And we had ridden all day, and it was a fun day. And uh, we're hitting this jump at the end of the day. And everybody kind of hits the jump, and, and everything's good. And a couple of, couple of the guys actually said, I'm going to go back to the trucks. And so they did. They left. And, and me and a couple other guys, of course, say we have to hit it one more time. So I go down the hill. And I'm I am PM wide open. I'm going as fast as I can. And and oh, wait, what does that mean? So I'm probably going about thirty forty miles an hour. Okay. On a on a on a dirt bike, just as fast as which I is can. pretty fast on a dirt bike. Yeah. I, I'm and I'm climbing a hill that's 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 pretty steep. So I'm going as fast as the bike will go, and that's yeah, I'm flying. Okay. Knowing that it, the hill's going to end right up at the top, and I'm going to continue to fly up over the top of this hill. Why? Well, my goal wasn't to fly because <laughs> I knew I couldn't fly. So what happened was the bike malfunctioned. Something happened with the bike and it didn't work properly. And I and I freaked because of the moment it was it was high stress. It was you know I couldn't. It was a split second decision and I didn't make the right decision in that point. And what happened was I ended up wrecking. I jumped way too far, wrecked, busted up my my ribs, busted teeth out. Uh, horrible horrible experience from in that moment. But that taught me some pretty important principles that I've lived by lived by for for a long time. And, okay. Yeah. So why the one that I was thinking of was a little bit different than that. You had discovered that you could jump this table, and for those that are listening, a table is just when you're coming up and you jump over a flat spot and you land on another steep spot. Yeah. And if you've seen any of these X game, you know, Nate's not really one of those X game no. guys, but <laughs> he's, he's like the tricycle X game guy. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a, it's a super thrill, isn't it? Right. And, and I just, think, yeah, let me, let me get into, I think where you're going with this, because this is the same moment I didn't, I didn't talk about. So building up to jumping this jump, you know, you, you, you go and you jump a little bit Yeah. to build up to it. Right. And I, you know, you jump ten feet, then you jump twenty feet. You kind of build, build, build up to this moment where you're now going to jump sixty feet, or in this case, I jumped a hundred feet, and and everything went wrong, and horrible, horrible thing. So. <laughs> and you had some loss in that in that experience, didn't you? I did. I well, I sold my motorcycle and swore I'd never get into it again. Which, yeah. So it was it was an education. Expensive education, but what kept you coming back to that was that thrill, right? Wasn't it? Yep. It was the experience that was going through your body of finding out that you could do something, and that also happens when we see other people doing something. We kind of have this social proof that you know maybe that's possible too. And when other people are getting great returns, we feel left out if we're not getting that same great return. Yeah, and that kind of creates the feeding frenzy that happens at the end of any cycle, where everybody's jumping in. And a whole lot of people end up getting hurt. Yeah. So um, I'm not saying that investors are um, dopes to say that they're not smart. Mm -hmm. Most investors are very, very smart. And one of the best things investors can do is invest in their education and get better and better at what they do. But most of us don't have any business being in those investments. And when I say those investments, I'm going to leave that really general. Yeah. But anything that's a higher risk investment, we probably don't have any business being in until we create the right strategy. Yeah. I'm not saying risk is bad. I love risk. Risk is one of the things that to me makes life exciting. But it needs to be controlled. Yeah. It needs to be managed. And that, that movie did a really good job of, um, in my mind, explaining why. So for those of you listening, I'd go watch that. And uh, 
Mind over money, right? Mind over money. <clears throat> and kind of figure out where you fit into that that category. And if that's just not an issue for you, then uh, you could come teach all of us how to be a little <laughs> bit better at not taking the risk. Yeah. But Nate and I are going to talk about some some theory and some strategy today. And you know, one of the things that uh, takes place in the market with you know the education, we'll put quotation marks around that, that the market tries to give us, which we're going to call sometimes a lie or a lot of times a lie, is this theory of asset allocation. Or maybe, maybe more of not the whole picture. Right? Not the full picture. Yeah. And if I knew a truth and I didn't tell you the entire thing, I'm not giving you the full picture, am I? How can I make a proper analysis and make the right move? Right. And then if you feel betrayed because things didn't work your way, you feel like I lied to you. Right. And I think there's a whole lot of people that are experiencing that in the market and have for a long time, not just the recent years where things went bad. Um, But if we're talking about asset allocation, what comes to mind for you? Well, you know my background. Um, I help clients invest in in mutual funds. Prior to being here with with uh, with Paradigm Life, I'm securities licensed. Um, not currently practicing that, but but for me, uh, when when you look at the traditional sense of of investing, um, asset allocation is where you diversify within uh, different uh, different different uh, assets um, to to mitigate the risk, and that's that's the idea behind it. So it kind of looks like a pie, right? And different asset allocate or different asset classes have a different percentage of that pie, right? Okay. What well, one may be more at the time may be more risky than the other, and so maybe they work opposite of each other, and so you want to you want to invest in one because if this one goes if this one you know loses value or doesn't perform, then then the one that works opposite should perform, right? And we're taught to diversify, aren't we? Yeah. Um, I heard a saying once that nobody ever got rich diversifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, another saying was nobody ever got rich in mutual funds. Right. Um, what are your thoughts there? Well, I don't think that nobody got rich by somebody investing in mutual funds. I don't think the right person ever got rich by that by the investor investing in mutual funds. But the whole principle of diversification, what does that do? Well, it 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 prevents you from focusing on and this is this is one topic. It prevents you from focusing on on and really creating that focus on your particular investments. And to me, what I found with clients is, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna elect the retirement fund. Uh, you know, I'm gonna retire in year 2023. So that's the fund I'm gonna go into. Not understanding where the money was being invested and how that mutual fund really works. And therefore, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. I'm going to put the money there, and it's going to—it's my retirement account. So I don't—I'm investing now. I don't have to manage it because it's—it's—it's it's, it's, uh, diversified, and I don't have to worry about it. So have you really invested, or have you just abdicated that responsibility? You've simply abdicated the responsibility. You've given that responsibility to somebody else, and do they have any accountability? No, really. I mean, why do they not have any accountability? Well, number one, their fee is there whether it win, or whether you win or lose, right? So. They're going to win. So whether the market's up or down, they're going to make money. Right. So why does it matter? Yeah. To, in, to some degree, I mean. Okay. So the thought here is um, a little bit about control, and I don't want to get too far into control yet, but let's back up a little bit and talk about, spend a little bit more time on asset allocation. How does somebody decide what a good asset allocation <laughs> is for me or for you or for anybody else? Well, you go through, you know, the advisor might look through a risk profiling. Uh-huh. Looking at their, you know, what is your risk, and they might go through some questions to try to determine what a person's risk is, and and that might tell that might the model might tell them you need to go into this particular allocation, and so I don't know if that's yeah absolutely. So somebody else is basically telling you or me right. <clears throat> what it is, and and they determine that based on age and the amount of money that you've got yeah. or your risk tolerance, and exactly. there's big quotation marks around that, <laughs> and uh, that's one of those things that for me has always been. Um, a little puzzling because one of the things Warren Buffett says is number one rule of investing is don't lose your money. Yeah. And number two rule, don't forget, don't rule, forget number one. rule number one. And um, Brad brought that up in his, his discussion on risk a couple weeks ago. But Warren Buffett's not a dope, <laughs> right? Right. Nobody would say that. So why? Why is he so focused on not losing money? 
Why is that so important? Because a lot of times you're winning by not losing, and it keeps you in the right position to uh, jump on an opportunity that, that's coming down the road that you can't foresee at this point. So if you have all of your money invested in high, high risk, you know, a high risk portfolio and you have no control, and we're going to talk a little bit about, about that control, but if you have no control over that, you lose the money. Now everything, you know, the market deflates or the market, you know, has a correction. Everything is on sale, but you lost all your, you, you lost a large portion of that money. It's hard to, it's hard to recover. It's hard, it's, to hard, it's hard to jump on the next opportunity because, uh, you know, psycho the, the, the psych, or the you know the the fear in you says I I don't want to be in that anymore. Well, that's the best time to be getting in, if you're an if you're you know if you're an investor in the market. Yeah, and there's this natural law of momentum, and when you break that momentum, it's just it takes so much more energy yeah. to get that inertia going again to build that momentum up again. Yep. Um, so when we're looking at that pie chart, there's always this portion that is high risk, right? Right, and let's just say five percent of that or ten percent is high yep. risk. That is investments that you're taking a bit of a gamble on. Um, you could lose your money. But if you keep losing that money and then you keep reallocating 10% <laughs> back into that portion of your pie, eventually there's no pie left. Right. Right. And yet this whole theory of a pie is um, a pie's not going to get any bigger. So all we can do is move those around yeah. a yeah. whole bunch. Right. Um, but, but banks... We've, we've spent a lot of time in a lot of our training and videos that we've got for our, our readers and our, our listeners about, talking about banks. Banks don't invest this way. No. Bank, banks are in the business of, to some degree, trying to mitigate risk and utilization of the dollars rather than simply investing and putting in a, into control of some, the control into somebody else's hands. Yeah. And, it, and I guess the question is, who do you want to model? Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to model somebody that's uh, using somebody else's money and, and, you know, investing it in asset allocations and a lot of different things, because they're going to get the benefit of assets under management and getting all that right. money every year. Or do you want to take on a strategy that is a little more tried and true and certain? Right. Um, so when we're talking about banks, you know, I saw an article that just recently, I think it was the end of last week, where 24 European banks have been found to have not met the reserve requirement or the risk requirement. Um, so they're being required to find liquidity. They're being required <laughs> yeah. to get a whole bunch more money. Why does that happen? Well, because there's, there's, there's too many variables that, that we can't control. That's what creates that, that risk. Um, you know, as risk goes up, you have to have that liquidity. It's that it's the foundation. Without that foundation, you know, you're in you're in a in a in a higher risk category, and and those variables change, and you didn't have the proper the proper foundation. You're in trouble. And and you know, banks are you know managing risk, or banks are managing people's money in 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 a, in a sense. You know, people are, are depositing money, and if they don't have the right foundation in place, they can't they can't run that model and be profitable. Yeah. And they really do not want to stop their leverage. That's really how they're making money. Right. So when times get tough, they've got to do one of two things. They've either got to raise liquidity or lower leverage right. or both. <clears throat> right. Is that any different for you and I? No. It's, it's not any different for you and I because when times get tough, if we don't got, have the liquidity, if we don't have the reserves on, on the side to be able to take care of things, we don't have any choices. Yeah. And that, I want to talk a little bit. I'll bring another personal story in here about that. Um, so I, I had my own, I was building my own, uh, insurance and investment practice, um, you know, building up the client base and so forth. And I didn't have the right foundation in place. In other words, and I think what we're talking about is, is a, is a reserve, something that <clears throat> more like a rainy day fund, something you can fall back on that is a hundred percent liquid. Okay. So I didn't have that, that, that foundation in place properly. And what happened was I was taking all of my reserves and I was plowing it back in my business. And that was good. Like that was a good thing to do. I wasn't spending the money. I was plowing it back in my business, investing in the business. But again, I was swinging for the fences, right? I didn't yeah. have the foundation in place. And life happened. Uh, you know, I, it didn't turn out exactly like I hoped. And I was in trouble because I didn't have, I had invested all the money. The business opportunity didn't work out like I, like I hoped it would. 
and I didn't have the reserves to fall back on. So let's go back to your language. You said you were swinging for the fences. If you think back about that, why were you swinging for the fences? Well, I felt like I was I was young. I I could do that. I had time, <clears throat> and maybe it was you know I felt like I had plenty of time to make if if it didn't work out, I had plenty of time to to make up the difference in the future. But you think about that if if I didn't really capitalize, you know, in that time frame. Now I've lost all that. There's there's an opportunity cost. Or I've lost that 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 future growth on that on that you know potential opportunity by by losing, and I'm starting over going back to ground zero. So for me, swinging for the fences meant um, trying to capitalize in too big of a way without having the right, the right foundation. Right base. Nice. So um, that just brought a story to mind. Um, You know, the tortoise and the hare story from when you were a kid, (laughs) the, uh, the, the, the instinct that we have is always to try to run fast. And years ago, this was actually my first marathon. Um, I got on the bus early in the morning and the bus was going to take us to the starting line. And as I'm getting on the bus, I see one of my employees, one of these kids that worked for me. And I was just thrilled. He was excited to see me. I was excited to see him. We did not know we were running the same marathon. And so we sat in the seat together and I was running by myself and he was running by himself. And so we took the ride to the start and we, we told stories and, and, uh, you know, I teased him the entire time. You're the young guy. You're the <laughs> yeah. you're you're the hare, and uh, I I just say that, and I didn't say anything else. But just remember, you're the hare. Yeah. And at the end, as we're getting off the bus, I said, "Remember, I'm the tortoise. You're the hare, and you know the end of that story." <laughs> and so he really did take off. Yeah. He he was gone, and I was a little embarrassed because there was no <laughs> way I was going to come close to catching him. And I ran my race, and apparently he ran his race. And we were, I was coming up to the 25th mile mm. aid station. Yeah. We're at the end of the race, and and this is my first one, and I'm, I don't know, you know, I'm surviving, <laughs> but I've just run my steady, steady race. Yeah. I executed my plan. I grab one of the waters and a Gatorade, and I drink them both, and as I'm looking down, or looking up, I should say, I see him in front of me about wow. 15 feet. And it was it was exciting. No way. I'm going to beat him. <laughs> and I went up and, and I grabbed him by the, the shoulder and uh, kind of whispered in his ear. And I said, uh, tortoise, hair. And I kept <laughs> running. Well, he had injured his knee. Oh. With all the speed. And, yeah. and afterwards, I found out that his training wasn't quite what he had wanted it to be. Um, I passed him. Well, he he couldn't let that happen, and so he tried to keep up with me. In the last mile, point two, we kind of ran together back and forth, and we crossed the finish line together. He didn't finish any faster than I did, I guess is the moral of that story. And it's really difficult to run your race when everybody else is trying to run fast. Right. Right, because it's it's the crowd mentality, right? You want to do what everybody else is doing, and you stuck to your game plan because may, maybe it's because of your experience prior to that. Yeah, and you knew that if you stuck if you stuck to your game plan, you would catch up and you would <clears throat> you would you would steadily catch back up and be in the same place and maybe even even better. Yeah, and there's a lot that I learned from him as yeah. well from that and things he learned from me. And when we see each other today, we call each other tortoise and hare <laughs> and, and laugh about it. But uh, another analogy for that is uh, there's this building being built across the street. Yeah. And they've been working on that for a long time. It's not a big building, but it's taken them a long time to get out of the ground. Yep. And with my background in development and construction, this is one of the, th- the things that needs to take place. When you're building a building, you've got to build an appropriate foundation. And it always takes longer to get out of the ground than most people think that that process is the most important process to that building. And for a skyscraper, they could be underground, you know, below ground level, working on a tremendous amount of steel and rebar or, or, and concrete for a long, long time yeah. before you actually visibly see anything come out of the ground. And then when it comes out of the ground, it shoots up. Boy, it just goes. And it's yeah. just, how, all of a sudden, it went from Where'd nothing to where did that come from? Yeah. And it's amazing how fast they're building that building. Yeah. 
And I think that we ought to think about that a lot yeah. when we're thinking about our own strategy and be willing to dial it back if we need to and build that base. So here, here's another thought that I, that I had. So as you're, you're kind of talking about building the skyscraper, <clears throat> how long the, 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 the developer, the person who's putting up the capital or the organization is putting up the capital, how long do they want that skyscraper to last? Forever, if for they could. For as long as it yeah. possibly can, right? right? So they have to spend, invest the time and effort and the right resources to make sure it's going to stay there. And I think, you know, human nature is to not want to look 20 years in a, a, ahead. Rather, you want to look a month in a month in advance or maybe a few days in advance or whatever that short time frame is. My, my point is we, we need to get to where we're looking you know, many years in advance. And it, it's a process. It takes time to where you're thinking, instead of thinking a month in advance, you're thinking two months and then three months and then a year and then five years, 10 years, and then and the rest of your life. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a key. That's a key point. And you and I, as, as investors, we have a <clears throat> difficult time looking that far into the future. And anybody else has a difficult time doing that as well. Right. We're static investors in time. We really only have the ability to look short term. Absolutely, yeah. So we need to align ourselves with those that have the ability to look long term, and we need to model that strategy. So you said development, and that brought me, you know, another thought, which is when I was looking at risk with development, yeah, I quickly learned that I didn't need to take risk. Interesting. And I was in an industry where everybody thinks that you have to take risk. Yeah. But you can mitigate that risk. You can mitigate that risk through process and systems. So I would not close on a piece of property until I had the entitlements. Yeah. Because if I closed on that property before I had the entitlements and I couldn't get the approvals that I needed, all of a sudden I owned a piece of property that I didn't want. Right. That'd be a bad place to be because now I've got to sell it to somebody else. And who knows you know, yeah. what they want to do with it. Well, the value isn't going to be as high, obviously. So you're not going to get what you need to get out of it. Right. And so it was always, if we were to draw a, uh, a, a chart, mm -hmm. it's always this um, evaluation of the probability of something happening okay. on a scale versus the, um, you know, the, the tragedy that would, it would be <laughs> if it happened or, you know, what kind of a, a catastrophe, you know, that would amount to. Right. And it's, <clears throat> if you just, you know, put the um, probability on the, the uh, vertical axis, okay. axis, the one that goes up and down. Right. I'll just try to paint this picture in our, our, our uh, listeners' minds. And on the horizontal axis, that is, you know, the severity of the problem. Okay. You want to be as close to the lines right. as you can be. And really as close to that vortex as you can be Absolutely. of that chart. And so if you just drew a parabolic line through there with the vortex being down at the intersection of those two yep. lines. That's a way to look at risk. And, you know, we, we don't want to take risk that is going to blow us up. Right. If we've built a foundation, then it affords us the opportunity to take some risks where we could have bigger wins. Absolutely. And if we lose at that point in time, we don't lose everything else. Right. Let's go back and talk about the banking industry and how okay. they've been required to have, you know, huger, that's a, that's a great word. It huh? is. Larger <laughs> um, asset reserves. Yeah. And how do they do that? Yeah, increasing their reserves. What are one of the, what's one way they do that, that you and I are familiar with? Well, now, I was not familiar with this until a few years ago. Yeah. It actually blew my mind when I found out what banks were doing. Now you're talking about putting some of their capital in properly structured life insurance policies. Yeah. Right? And what they're calling it a T1 asset. Yep. So a life insurance policy, a properly structured life insurance <clears throat> policy that builds cash value is, can be counted as a T1 asset right. on the books of the bank or a corporation for that matter. Why are they doing that? Well, because it, it, it affords them the the opportunity to to or it gives them the permission slip to then go into tier tier two and tier three type type assets. Yeah. They never really get into the tier yeah. tier three and tier four type assets. But a bank uh, has a tremendous amount of money and not all banks do, but any bank that has a banking charter, you can go on to the the uh, website of the FDIC, FDIC because yeah. they have a banking charter, they have to list all of their 
financials there. And so you can see the financials of any bank that has a banking charter. And when you go on there and you go to Bank of America, for instance, there's $19 billion of cash value in whole life, life insurance. insurance. Yeah. Why? That is a tremendous amount of money. And a lot of our listeners probably don't even know that. Right. It's amazing to me that, that that's how they operate. And if they operate that way, why in the world isn't it good enough for you and I? Yeah. So if I want to model someone, that might be something to model. The, uh, the tortoise and the hare story. You know, th these banks, you know, sure, a lot of banks have gone out of business, but why have they gone out of business? Because they didn't have the right reserves. They didn't. Yeah, the Federal Reserve held them accountable. Hmm. So it's an interesting thing to look at. Um, we've got to be playing an offense and a defense. So I'm not saying that everything needs to be in that one thing. Yeah. But the, the, the more sure we create that foundation, the higher we're going to be able to build that building. And so if the majority of my time and energy is put into building that base, I'm going to be way better off at the end of the day. And then I can take risk that I might not have otherwise been able to take. And the problem with that. If we look at the T1 asset like the base of a pyramid, sure. the tier 2 can go on top of that, and the tier 3 can go on top of that, and the tier 4 can go on top of that. But most people are building that pyramid upside down, and they're starting with the tier 4, and their point is down at the bottom. They have yeah. no foundation, and this whole thing can tip over pretty fast. So let me, let me just to clarify, in your mind, when you say tier 4, and most people kind of start with that, <clears throat> just for our listeners, what would you define as a tier four asset, would you say? A high risk investment that I'm investing in where I think I might hit it big so that I have the ability to do other things. Okay. So high, high risk yep. is what we're talking about. You are shooting for the moon. And that's where, if you start there, the pinnacle of the, of the pyramid, and if it doesn't work or if some variable happens, that pyramid is going to go one of two ways, right? Or I guess it's going to tip over. It's going to tip over. Yeah. And in my background, you know, I was really good at investing other people's money. My partner's you know, they felt very confident with me use, utilizing their money. Yeah. There was no way I was going to lose that money. But when it came time to my own money, <laughs> I was willing to take a little bit more risk. Interesting. The timing didn't work out. And we can't ever predict that, can we? No. We live in uncertain times. It's absolutely unbelievable the amount of stuff that we're dealing with these days. It's kind of exciting, though, at the same time. Well, there's it creates a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And and if all of your assets are in a high risk very illiquid account and and life happens when i say life happens you know a variable something changes that you have no control over and all everything you have is in that tier 4 asset well as as you know things kind of kind of fall apart in the financial world it does create opportunity but for those that have their foundation set, those that have built that pyramid in the right way, yeah, it gives them the opportunity to to capitalize on opportunity when opportunity comes. Opportunity seeks liquidity. Yep, and we see that over and over and over, and I've seen it in my career. Um, those that have means are able to take advantage of the opportunities when they show up. Yeah. So when I talk about these being exciting times. They're exciting because there's ups and downs. Yeah. And though you and I don't have a crystal ball and we cannot predict other than we probably can predict that, that, uh, um, the monetary puppet, um, Yellen will not touch interest rates tomorrow when they meet, we can probably predict that, but there's really nothing else we can predict. And we can't even predict that. Right. Can we? Mm -mm. So with the market doing what it's doing in the world economy, doing what it's doing. I think these are exciting times when you've got a base that's built and you've got the ability to take advantage of opportunity. Yeah. And maybe maybe there's there's some something to talk about with regards to the emotional side of things. Cuz <clears throat> if you're taking on all that risk, you don't have a foundation built. How are how is your emotional life? Oh gosh. I mean, I I'm sure maybe you've been there in the past. I know I've been there and everything is affected. Everything. everything. It adds to your inability to make yep. good rational decisions when the going gets tough. Exactly. So by having that foundation, you you create an emotional foundation as well, yeah. which allows you 
mentally, emotionally to make the right choices on those future opportunities. A compounding effect. Oh, I love that. You know, one of the hardest things to teach clients is to be patient. Yeah. And they build this cash value in their policies and they want to, they want to get it working for them. Yeah. And it's difficult to be patient because that thing that we talked about that's yeah. going on inside us, and yet it's also a responsibility. So they want to be a good steward and they want to get it working. But if they're patient, chances are a great deal is going to show up on their doorstep and they're going to be able to take advantage of it and they're going to be able to make their appreciation on the purchase. Yeah. And that's really where money's made is on the acquisition. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So – um, if you think back in, in your history about that theory of opportunity seeking liquidity, are there any thoughts that come to mind? Well, the first thought would be <clears throat> how many, how many opportunities have I, have I not been able to capitalize on because I just didn't have the, have the liquidity yeah. and there, there were, there have been certain times when there, I, I, there, there was an opportunity and I just could not, I couldn't jump on it. Yeah. You can see it. You know, it's oh, a great yeah. opportunity. And you watch it play out and it's like, dang it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then it feels so good when you can swoop yeah. in and take advantage of a good yep. opportunity. But I, I love trying to teach that principle. Yeah. It's difficult. It goes against human nature. <laughs> it goes against that emotion. It goes against the theory that we started out talking about. And so if, if we're emotional beings and we don't always make rational decisions, we need to put something in place that's going to give us the ability to kind of have a checks and balance against those times Absolutely. so that we're accountable to ourselves for, to that system, right? And right. how does a policy provide that for you? Well, for me, so as I build my cash value, I'm, I'm putting money into the, into the paid up edition, right? As much as I can, I'm building, building that cash value up through, through interest, dividends, future savings into the policy it starts building this this foundation and ultimately a benchmark because i know i know what i can earn in the policy and how much risk does does a policyholder have to take by putting money in their policy I, I i go home i go to bed and i sleep really good yeah. i wake up and i don't i actually don't think about what my dividend was right because i just know it happened because think about the 150 year model that's been tried proven tested and proven by the insurance company over that time frame I get to participate in that by simply purchasing a policy. Yeah. Because and, you've aligned yourself with brilliant investors that have yep. the ability to look into the future long term and not be a static investor in time. Exactly. Because yep. they've got <clears throat> hundreds of millions of dollars to work with. They've got the ability to do things that you and I couldn't do. Yep. That's beautiful. So here, one other thought on that. So we talk about how they are brilliant. Inve they are some of the best money managers in, in the world. But also, that, that's just talking about the investment side of things. Uh, the other side of that is their business model, which is risk management. And simply just to, to keep it really, really simple, uh, you look at any, any line of insurance, okay? They bring in premiums. They have decades and decades of data to know how to price that risk, to know how much premium to charge for that risk. They bring in the premium, pay out any future claims they're going to have to pay out. The difference is profit, okay? And that's, how, that's a big part of how they're able to turn profits within that model. And me as a whole life policyholder with a mutual insurance company, I get to participate in those profits. Yeah, I like that. So not only do you have some brilliant investors, you also have that part of it as well. Absolutely. The other thing that it does for me, it gives me the ability to perform better in what I do well. Yeah. Which to me kind of, you know, it releases a pressure valve. Absolutely. I don't need to be a brilliant investor. I can do what I do well. Because I really believe that most of us should be investing in ourselves and our own business. Right. The re if I'm making great money in my business, there really isn't anywhere else I should invest my money. Absolutely. If I can make that kind of return consistently over and over and over. Yep. And that temptation to always put our money somewhere else with somebody else, that's always bothered me. Yeah. You know, because you are brilliant at what you do and you need to be growing that. And Anybody that's in business has a system, and if they perfect that system and they can just keep duplicating that system, that's where they should invest. Right. The opportunity to be able to use that tier one asset or, or that, that foundation that they build with the cash value in their policy for that gives them a tremendous amount of flexibility and control. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, for me, it really is about control. If I'm going to mitigate risk, I've got to control yep. the things that are going on there. Yep. 
So I've got to move that mark in that chart that we talked about down into the corner as much yeah. as I can or as close to one of those lines as, as I can. And that, that gives us the ability to play both offense and defense right. and not worry about you know, who we're pulling off the floor and who we're putting back on, yeah. on the team. Yep. Because if, we, if we've got a good, you know, if we're playing defense, 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 and we don't ever think about offense, can we win the game? Uh, it'd be dang hard to win the game. You're gonna, you may win some, right? But you're not going to win a high percentage. But at the same time, if we got all our offensive players on the court and we're not playing defense, you know. You're, you're going to capitalize on some things, but the other team's going to capitalize on your weakness. And so yep. the same thing happens in, in your investment. You're playing a high-risk game. Yep. Yep. So if we've got a good defense, we can afford to put the, uh, those uh, awesome offense players out there once in a while. Yep. When we need to. Yep. Cool. So what other thoughts are coming to your mind in terms of uh, risk and some of the things? You know, that... one thing I want to talk a little bit more about, I know we're coming close to the end here. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the benchmark. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about building the foundation and that, that builds, you know, an emotional foundation as well. Having that, you know, you're okay. You know that when your tier two, three and four assets aren't performing or life happens, you can fall back to your foundation because you have that. But more than that, the benchmark is I know I'm earning four or 5%, net returns on my policy. Now I have the ability to look at the other opportunities out there and look at, you know, analyze the risk associated with that opportunity. And am I going to be, am I going to capitalize enough more than what the policy is giving me to take on that risk? Yeah. How much risk do I have to take to get a 10% return? Doesn't make sense if I don't to take any risk whatsoever and get a 5% return on my policy. So you've created a great baseline, which is that benchmark yep. that you can judge everything else by. And in the policy, you're getting, the, you're getting that return with no risk. You can sleep at night. You don't have to think about it. So why in the world would you, you know, compromise that right. without putting the safety nets in well, place? Yeah. And so one other thing to kind of talk about real quick here is, is, you know, as we talk about risk, there are two sides of risk. There's two sides to that spectrum. If I'm only earning 5%, that's all I do. Just leave my money in, in the policy, let it earn 5%. That's great. But is that, is that going to be enough to realize the goals that I want to realize? And for me, it's not. It's not enough. Because... After we, we, we you know, add in inflation and, and the, the devaluing or, or the, the loss of purchasing power as a result, that 5% is, is, is less. It's not, it's not enough is my point. Right. So we do have to take risk. My point is with having that benchmark is I don't have to take – I shouldn't take a lot more risk to hopefully get a 6% return, right? But I do need to take some risk. I do need to look at – you know, being industrious, um, creating extra value to ultimately create, you know, a lot bigger than a 5% return because it's may not be enough. Yeah, I like it. So to kind of recap what we've talked about, we spent a little bit of time talking about that, uh, the, the drive that people have to take risk and why it's just sort of inherent in some of us and yep. that we need to put systems in place. We need to, you know, be able to have accountability to that. And if we know that we're that type of person, put something in place that's going to help you make those tough decisions when the going gets tough and emotions might not be going your yep. way. <laughs> um, and uh, that theory of asset allocation, I love that discussion because, in my opinion, it, it doesn't work that way. Right. We really need to be looking at it completely different. We need to be building our foundation. We need to be building that base. And then we can go for the sky yep. once we build it solid. Yep. Um, and it really is about control. There's nothing wrong with risk. There's nothing wrong with right. risk when we can control that risk. Right. It's about mitigating that risk, making sure that we've eliminated some of the things that we can eliminate. And by creating that, that tier one asset, you know, by utilizing that cash value in a whole life policy, we've got the ability to do that as well as the banks. Now, we may not be able to leverage the same way that the banks do with the Federal Reserve, <laughs> but we've got a lot more leverage going on there right. as well that we wouldn't otherwise have. And that's one of the things that just constantly amazes me. And sometimes it's easy for us to take it for granted. My money is working for me multiple times inside that policy. Right. Why in the world wouldn't I just keep putting more money and more money in policies 
when it's working for me multiple times. And and it's it's liquid. Yeah. You're not you're not getting it illiquid by in, by putting the money in the in the policy. It's it's creating liquidity while still getting all of those investment like returns. At the same time we're building that base so we've got that liquidity so when the right opportunities come we're comfortable taking a little bit of risk that's appropriate that's going to get us further ahead. Yeah. So I love that. Let's talk a little bit about uh you know Patrick likes this this uh wishbone moment. Okay. And uh do you have any good wishbone moments? Man, I I I totally forgot about the wishbone moment, so I hope that you have something. <laughs> I don't really have one, but I was reading this morning, and it was about you know some of the comments that were being made about uh, the Federal Reserve tomorrow okay. meeting. And so my wishbone moment is a prediction that, you know, like I said earlier, Janet Yellen will not touch okay. interest rates. Interest rates right. They're going to remain the same. And uh, I, in my opinion, that's not having much of a backbone because – that's a problem. Well, something has to change. Something has to happen. There has to be a price paid at some point in time. Right. We might as well start paying it a little bit. And that's another reason why this discussion that you and I have had today is of no fear to me. Right. Because with that kind of foundation, we've got the ability yeah. to weather any kind of storm that might result. But I believe in people. I believe in humanity. Right. I believe in their ability to be creative and, and come up with solutions and, and you know, survive yeah. if you will right i'm not a big fan of bureaucrats and policy yeah you know people that are trying to you know control that so that you know they in their minds they can make it better and one one of my big reasons for bringing up the fact that maybe 5% isn't enough and maybe we should be looking at other ways is the fact that you know don't don't be afraid and don't say I, i'm just going to do that and that because that's going to be good enough that's not good enough and because what what I found as I talk to clients is we kind of bring up these different ideas. It starts motivating their, you know, and getting their mind involved in what can I do? And they get excited. I, you can feel it as you talk to them over the, over the webinars that we do. Yeah. It is so exciting. And it, it excites me. And I've had clients that call back and say, hey, I've got this great idea. And I haven't even thought about it yet. I, I love it. And it's, and it's so contrarian too. I mean, we're talking about one of the things that the rest of the well, I shouldn't say the rest of the world, but a big percentage of the population out there thinks is the worst financial vehicle right. they can use. And you and I are saying it is the best right. financial vehicle we can use. That is really kicking against <laughs> the pricks. It's going against you know traditional yeah. norms and old dogma. But at this point in time, with where things are. You and I don't have the luxury of hanging on to old dogmas. Right. We've got to be willing to, you know, open our eyes a little bit and see what's going on. And I, I love that yep. about what we're doing. So my encouragement to everybody out there is to uh, um, take the time to see the next podcast. If you haven't um, watched those already, there's four um, videos in the Wealth Standard. You can go to the or www.thewealthstandard.com to see those in the upper right hand corner there's a gold tab which is TWS radio which uh, you can go on there and you can subscribe to the podcast and we're going to be coming to you live every Wednesday at 9 o'clock Mountain Standard Time and uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you next time thanks for joining us on the Wealth Standard Radio your gold standard in everything financial 